Thanks to everyone for joining us uh, for our call today. We're excited uh, to launch a new series. Uh, we spent um, almost a year uh, covering the 2016 presidential election. Uh, all of that information uh, and all that content is available on iTunes, but we've now launched a new series, which we're calling the Beltway Briefing, which will uh, provide uh, you and, and anyone else that may be interested with an update of what's happening in Washington as we enter uh, the administration of Donald J. Trump, um, issues that will affect not only business, um, but also the political climate, um, both inside the Beltway um, and certainly from time to time beyond. My name is Blake Rutherford. I'm joined as always uh, by Mark Alderman, Chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Howard Schweitzer, Managing Partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Howard, Mark, great to be with you again. Thanks, Blake. It is a, uh, it, it is a chilly day in, in the District of Columbia. I don't mean that uh, anything beyond the weather, but it's a cold day here in Washington, and we are 10 days away from the inauguration of President Donald J. Trump. And we have, uh, over the past couple of weeks, seen a lot of developments as his administration um, is coming together, as his inner circle is, is being rounded out, so to speak, most notably by the announcement that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, would take a prominent role inside the White House. That is not only the, one of the lead stories above the fold in the New York Times today, but New York Magazine uh, has a cover story, President's son-in-law. Um, we have seen uh, the beginnings, and as we talk now, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions, President-elect Obama's nominee to be Attorney General, uh, has begun his confirmation hearing. And over the course of the next several days, we're going to see uh, at least, I think now, six, we've had some scheduling changes, confirmation hearings. I want to talk about, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about uh, Trump's posture uh, over the last couple of weeks. And really, to begin, Howard, I want to, I want to start with you. Inside view of the Trump transition, it is, it is both at full speed and also winding down as we get to as we get to Inauguration Day and Day One, what do you make of, of where we are in the transition process? Well, Blake, back to your cold day reference, I think most people in this town said that it would be a cold day in hell when Donald Trump got elected president <laughs> of the United States. And um, I guess it's pretty cold in hell because he's, he's about to take the oath of office. The, the transition is um, proceeding, but Frankly, as we always said, they would be. They're behind where they need to be. Um, they are uh, slow in getting people nominated for these positions and getting their getting their ducks in a row. And they're still, frankly, coming up to speed across the government in terms of the things that need to be addressed um, in order to take the reins and and start effectively on on day one. We we are. We're beginning to see, I mean, certainly, you know, the media attentions on the, the high level posts, the, the cabinet secretaries. But as you as you both know very well, there are some 4000 positions that that the administration will need to fill. That is a complicated process. Hiring in general is a is a complicated process. Hiring within the federal government uh, is a particularly complicated process. Uh, what do you what do you see the impact of sort of that first 120, 160 days being at the agency level, Howard, as they try and get these positions filled? Well, there's, I'll tell you, I hear from people inside the kind of career bureaucracy that, that they're scared. They're scared about 
um, what Trump coming in means for their their roles, their power. Um, it's kind of, I would say, not business as usual as far as the bureaucratic mindset going into this thing. But I think they'll very quickly realize that in many ways this is business as usual, that uh, Trump isn't going to have these agencies populated with um, tons of people at the very beginning. And as a result, the bureaucracy is going to be what it always is, which is a powerful force, a force to be reckoned with. And, and they're going to realize that. So that's that's one consequence of people not being in these jobs quickly. Mark, what do you you, you saw this from? Let me just follow up, Blake, if I may, what Howard said, because uh, as Howard very well knows, there's actually one critical appointment that uh, at least as of yesterday hasn't been made yet. And that was the head of the presidential personnel office. What is going to happen shortly is the transition is going to stop hiring people for the government and the executive branch is going to start doing its own hiring through the presidential personnel office, which is yet to be staffed up itself. So I, I think what Howard said about it being a while before these agencies get populated is, uh, is especially true, given that that appointment is yet to be made. Well, it's an interesting point, Mark, because it's it's sort of the one of, I think, the, the very interesting, um, you know, uh, sort of ironies of, of Trump, Howard, and you've written about this, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, certainly the president-elect coming in and, and really thinking that change happens quickly when in when in effect it's very it it is very difficult to get that bureaucracy moving there is only so much um, that he's going to be able to achieve um, by executive order which as we know every incoming president usually signs a a a large stack of of executive orders Um, and we we would expect uh, president trump to do the same but even still the effect of that and getting getting those changes in place and executed requires people within the bureaucracy to make those kinds of things happen. And, and I sense that, that what, what, the, what the Trump inner circle may, may run headlong into is, is the fact that, that the bureaucracy is just simply not going to move, not going to move as fast. But, but I wonder, too, um, should, should we be worried? And I mean this not in a political context, but just in, in an operation of government context. Should we be concerned, Howard, by the, by no. the slowness of personnel? No, I mean, look, it takes any administration under the best of circumstances six months to to get its sea legs, to get out of campaign mode, to get their people in place, to 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 take the reins and actually govern. Um, it's going to take longer for this administration. But should we be worried? No, because there is this apparatus out there. If you're Trump, you've got to worry because um, there's there's going to be a rhetoric meets reality uh, point at which um, he's begins to be held to account, yeah. and he's he's you know everybody's following his tweets and I'm tweeting about his tweets at um, what underscore the underscore Trump, um, uh, but uh, you know he's he's making bold promises. And he's got to be able to execute on his agenda or the people that voted for him are going to get frustrated 
pretty darn quickly. And I want to come back to, to two big issues, one being the wall, the other being uh, repeal of the Affordable Care Act in a minute. But, Mark, before we get to that, obviously the, the big news of the day is confirmation hearings. Uh, they, they have begun, as I mentioned. Um, Senator Jeff Sessions uh, is before uh, the Senate now. Um, his nomination for attorney general being discussed and, and debated. Uh, what, what do you make generally of, uh, of, of the confirmation process as it begins, sort of general thoughts and, and things to, to be on the lookout for? And then I want to talk about the role of the Democrats. But first, just wanted to get some general thoughts. Well, I think generally the confirmation hearings are being scheduled uh, in a bunch as they were eight years ago as well. I think all of the drama about too much too soon is a little bit misguided because that's how every new president, uh, especially changing from one party to the other, has to stand up uh, his government. So I, I think it's gonna come and go in a relative hurry. And I think that maybe one doesn't get through, but notwithstanding all the sound and fury, you're gonna see Trump's appointments taking their oaths of office uh, within the next couple of weeks. So, Howard, today it's it's Sessions, as I mentioned, and also John Kelly, um, the nominee for Homeland Security. Tomorrow it's Rex Tillerson of, at State and Elaine Chow. And then on Thursday it's John Mattis at Defense and Mike Pompeo at, at CIA. And that, I think right now, will get us through the week. They've they've delayed a couple of, of hearings mm-hmm. that were that were scheduled for this week uh, now until next week. Um, you know, what do you make of what do you make of that lineup? Any any particular challenges for the Trump team? I think it's good. I mean, the one they're going to press hard on Sessions, but he's going to get confirmed, mostly because he's a member of the club. Um, they're going to press hard on Tillerson. He's going to get confirmed. They're going to um, use it as an opportunity. The Senate's going to use it as an opportunity. Both sides of the aisle to lay markers on Russia. But he's going to get confirmed. Um, Mnuchin at Treasury is the one where I see the most vulnerability right now. Um, and do you make that because of his past business practices? What, what do you think the, the real challenges would be there? Uh, it, well, this, this is where it gets interesting. I think he's vulnerable because of his association with um, IndyMac and um, the financial crisis and home foreclosures, et cetera. Um, He's even more vulnerable because um, Mike Pence wanted Jeb Henserling in that job and not Steve Mnuchin. And they frankly have surrounded him with a bit of a weak team um, as they send him up to the Hill to go through the confirmation process. And I think there are a lot of people on Team Trump that aren't going to shed a tear if, if he goes down. And I think that if you're the Democrats and you're looking to throw down on one thing where um, you think coming out of the election um, you're going to resonate with the American people, it's Elizabeth Warren, it's the financial crisis, it's it's Goldman, and I just I I see them I see them going after him. It's an interesting point, Mark, uh, and, and a nice segue to sort of the the posture of the Democrats. 
during the, the confirmation process? Do you do right. you if you're if you're Leader Schumer and and Elizabeth Warren, etc. Uh, do you look to to really try and strike down one of these nominees if it if it fits a, if it fits a, a, an appropriate uh, political narrative for your party, as Howard described? Sure, absolutely, and that in fact is what I've been told by a number of uh, Democratic senators, including uh, the minority leader uh, himself. But they need to pick and choose with great care because they're going to be able to knock off one they hope. The goal is to hold 48 Democrats for one of these and find three Republicans and at least send a message that they can stop something. Maybe it's uh, Mnuchin. I I think Coward's uh, commentary is, is spot on. But there's another one that uh, everybody is looking at on our side of the aisle, and that is uh, General Pruitt, Scott Pruitt at EPA. There's an enormous coalition already formed of environmental types and climate change types. And there is a, a chance that that's where the Democrats decide to throw down their 48 votes and look for three others, if they can find them. Finding those other three votes is is not gonna be easy with any of these nominees, Mnuchin or or Pruitt, but but I would watch for one all out push by the Ds and and they just may stop somebody. I, I just don't see it on the EPA because, I mean, they may, there's going to be an all out push but, but I don't see the R's backing down on Pruitt. I don't think I don't see Trump backing down on Pruitt. He's as as we were told by a um, Democratic United States senator. He's qualified for the job, um, and whether you agree or disagree with him on policy is is another issue. But he's qualified for the job, and so I see them not trying to. I mean, it'll look like they're trying to take him down, but what the D's are going to do across the board on these confirmation hearings, Mark and Blake, is they're going to lay markers. These are as much about laying policy markers. They're as much about holding uh, these individuals to account when they come back to the Hill later on, when they begin to execute as agency heads, as it is an up or down vote. In fact, much more so. Well, and that, that's an interesting point, too, because we're not only seeing markers and policy. And the one thing I'd say about the EPA, it's it's such a potent political right. issue for even moderate Democrats. Or I think are going to going to I'm not suggesting that, that Pruitt pulls any Democrats. But if you look at if you look at where the, where the EPA is, boy, it's a it's politically potent for the Republicans to 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 sort of get get away from this overregulation point on the EPA that's that's just worked so well for them. Right. But but I want to but I want to pivot to not only are we seeing or are we expecting to see policy markers, we're also expecting to see political markers. And one of the interesting things uh, Mark that I wanted to get your take on was Senator Cory Booker's decision uh, to testify against Jeff Sessions. Um, right. which that's never happened before. Um, and and I think, you know, I I'll, I'll, I'll be interested in in your take, it, it seems to me that has as much to do about about Booker being able to 
to test out some themes and get and get his own markers down about about um, you know some some critical criminal justice issues, which may help him four years from now. But I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, I think you just shared my thoughts actually with the reference to uh, four years from now, and and especially the criminal justice part. Senator Booker is deeply and sincerely interested in, committed to criminal justice reform. But at the same time, this is an opportunity for him to debut his 2020 chances. And all of that is absolutely in the air on on the Democratic side down there. This is uh, a party that is about to lose its leader when the president, about whom we're going to talk in a minute, uh, leaves office. And I think that Booker's decision, which is not going to stop the Sessions nomination, I completely agree with Howard that Sessions is going to get confirmed, but I think that Booker saw a platform that uh, he, he couldn't resist, and I think that this is the beginning of uh, a number of, uh, of applications for uh, the, the candidate job in 2020. The biggest threat to Jeff Sessions is Jeff Sessions. It's getting having been voted down um, yep. in 1986. Well, it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting. I, I think we're like I said, we've got we've got confirmation hearings uh, over the course of the next three days and then certainly next week. So. So we'll begin to we'll begin to see more of this, and certainly have more to talk about um, on our next call. But Mark, I, I wanted to I did want to want to pivot um, away from confirmation and to the point about uh, about the president and and the fact that the Democrats, you know, are losing you know their leader tonight. Um, the president will deliver his farewell address uh, from Chicago, and I wanted to to get a sense from you. You were. You were there before there was a day one, um, and it's it's got to be both a you know a a very um, bittersweet moment certainly in the context of the administration coming to the end. But but I wanted to just get your thoughts. We haven't oftentimes just kind of talked about you know your your first meeting with him and then what you think uh, the president might say tonight. So I just wanted to wanted to to yeah. to have a little conversation about that. Well, we will hear tonight uh, what the president thinks of all this. Uh, there have been, what, 44, I guess, right, farewell addresses. Uh, 41 or two uh, have come and gone. Occasionally, George Washington, uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Occasionally, it is a, a speech of continuing consequence. I am hopeful that the the speech tonight will be uh, like those. I think what the president is going to do is go back to the beginning and put his presidency in context. I think that we will hear about the crisis with which Howard is personally and intimately familiar from his TARP service, the, the economic crisis that this country was in when Barack Obama took office. And we can argue all we please about whether it was the presidency or the markets or the gods or the tides of the ocean. But the fact is that 
when he took office, we were shedding 800, 900,000 jobs a month. The markets were at uh, very low points, and today the markets are at historic highs. The country has created 15 million jobs. Unemployment is under 5%. I think you're going to hear a lot about what it looked like in Grant Park uh, eight years ago and, and what it looks like now. And then you'll hear about the legacy, of course, and I would expect the president to make a very direct and, and very public appeal to the president-elect and to the Congress to preserve the legacy that he believes uh, is most important. Uh, certainly the Affordable Care Act being, uh, I believe, for tonight's purposes at the top of that list. And Howard, we're beginning to see along those lines some, some movement within Republican Party circles. Certainly Donald Trump uh, made repeal of the Affordable Care Act um, a signature component of his platform. Um, the, uh, the Congress is beginning to look at how to do that. Um, and what that means. Uh, I want to I want to dive into that a little bit because I think the consequence of of that certainly is gonna is gonna have a, a relationship to obviously the healthcare community at large. But but it, but if you're the president tonight, how do you how do you strike the right thematic tone, knowing that you know you do you have been at least throughout the course of this transition, uh, we have heard from from the inside both engaged with. President-elect Trump helpful to the extent um, there's an opportunity to be so, and and also I think courteous to to um, to to just the events of transition. How do you yeah. how do you strike the right tone, but also draw those contrasts? I mean, every, everything's political, yeah. and there's a lot of stuff. Some of which we are dealing with on behalf of our clients that is happening in the waning days of the Obama administration here. Um, some of it very public, some of it very not public, but stuff happening that is an attempt to box um, Trump in, and and it's all political, and um, we're going to see that in the speech tonight. That's how Obama does this. He basically says in in more eloquent uh, words, there are you know tens of millions of people that didn't have health insurance and now do and we're better off as a result and you can't leave those people out in the cold um, and kind of puts it on Trump to to deal with that issue. Let's, and I want to talk about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act because because there's certainly this has been in the news and sort of I want to talk about what it yeah. like procedurally what it actually means. So it, it looks like um, that as early as Thursday, um, the Senate's going to approve some parliamentary language that's going to give it um, the opportunity to use a budget, re budget resolution to sort of fast track the repeal. And then based on the current circumstance, um, January 27th would be the deadline whereby both House and Senate would have to refer out repeal legislation. Um, but we've seen some movement within the GOP from Senator Bob Corker, from Senator Tom Cotton, um, who have from the House Freedom Caucus, mm -hmm. um, who have said, look, we really can't go down this repeal road without a replacement solution. There's 
it's impractical. Corker said, you know, certainly there's no way we could have a repeal solution ready by January 27th. He's asked for a delay until March mm-hmm. um, to really try and figure it out. But then, Mark, as you mentioned, you know, on a call several weeks ago, there the kind of repeal strategy is we'll repeal now, but we'll delay effect for for a while until we can figure out the replacement strategy. The House Freedom Caucus has put up a fight to that as well, Howard. I wanted to to get your sense. It doesn't seem like at this point that repeal may be as smooth as I think Leader McConnell had hoped. But yeah, what do you I mean, think of course that? not, because. It's a law that has broad and significant impacts on the population, and you can't just do away with it. And, and, and there are plenty of Republican senators out there and members of Congress that feel like it's helping their constituents, even though it's politically toxic, and they don't want to just pull the rug out from under their constituents. You know, it's so interesting, Mark, because we... Um, we have seen, and, and certainly you were, you were involved in, in the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and we have seen in, in even red states programs like Medicaid expansion, which have, which have really helped, which have really helped states. They've helped rural hospital systems. Um, they've helped millions of, of people who couldn't otherwise afford health insurance get on health insurance, which of course then has, has helped the industry at large. But I was surprised today by a story in the New York Times where, you know, it said the health lobby, which was so influential in the passage of the Affordable Care Act, is kind of sitting on the sidelines um, right now, in part because they don't want to alienate the administration, in part because when Trump tweets something, it has a direct effect on on their bottom line of their business. Uh, what do you make about that political dynamic as we look at the repeal issue in broader context? Well, I think that the healthcare lobby is sitting on the sidelines waiting to see when the replacement debate comes, Blake. Uh, I think there will be re-engagement as soon as the opportunity arises, but right now it's a very strange time because we have, of course, the new Congress and it is moving forward with repeal and, I believe, some partial replacement. Speaker Ryan, by the way, this morning said exactly that, that he expects that there will be a concurrent repeal and replacement of certain elements uh, of the act. But you have the Congress moving forward and Donald Trump isn't president yet. So I think you are, are going to see people coming off the sidelines once there is full uh, engagement on that. But the entire saga of the Affordable Care Act, if I may just uh, digress for 60 seconds, the entire saga is, in a sense, a um, metaphor for the entire Obama presidency. Uh, The president got this thing passed, but barely, as everybody remembers. He and many of us are very, very proud of it and believe that it is an achievement worth saving, but it never got explained. It never got sold. It never got stood up. It certainly never got amended because of categorical Republican resistance. And you find yourself now 
in that uh, never never land of many people who supported Donald Trump enthusiastically, exuberantly, all of a sudden realizing that they're covered by the Affordable Care Act and that uh, this thing going away is not necessarily what they had in mind. I think it, it, we're going to see a lot of of what Howard said earlier, the rhetoric and the reality catching up with each other. And so many people said during the campaign, the Kelly Ann Conway said it yesterday, that you can't listen to Donald Trump's words, you can't take them seriously, you have to just believe what's in his heart. Uh, the, the words that a lot of people, though, voted for are going to collide now with their interests and it, it is going to be an adventure starting uh, at noon next Friday. I mean, look, this is fundamentally the difference between uh, being on the outside looking in and, and having the reins of government. And this is rhetoric meets reality. It's rhetoric of the last six years or whatever it is um, colliding with now the Republicans owning whatever happens next. This is classic. This is obviously the most visible way um, to see it, but it's happening across the government in, in a number of yep. number of respects. The other the other sort of big issue that we, we've heard about over the course of the last 10 days is, is and we come back to it, the wall. Um, who Are we going to build a wall and who's going to pay for it? I was on Fox News over the weekend talking about talking about the wall and and that's the other issue right now it certainly seems like um, that Trump uh, wants to build the wall but the American taxpayers are, are gonna have to flip the bill for that uh, mark in terms of, of, of sort of the the Democrats posture to to Trump's other big issue uh, what do you make of what do you make about the the debate about the wall and do you sense that that that's something that we're, we're seriously going to entertain and in that you know sort of first hundred day period well i doubt frankly that that becomes a, a priority it was certainly a rhetorical centerpiece of the campaign but i think that finding the money to build it is going to prove a challenge for a, a lot of the republican caucus not to mention the democratic uh, caucus for different reasons, uh, of course. And I would be surprised if, if that turns out to be a major to-do in those first hundred days. I think you're going to see uh, immigration tackled, I believe, Blake and Howard, on day one. I think the famous threat to repeal every executive order that President Obama did on day one, of course, was rhetoric. The reality is that it will hardly be everyone. But one that I think you will see is the president's executive order, President Obama's executive order, which deferred uh, enforcement of the immigration laws against uh, some 700,000 young undocumented resident aliens. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. In fact, I would be surprised if that doesn't disappear with a stroke of a pen on day one. Howard, let's talk about day one, because that's yeah. that's certainly, um, you know, obviously 10 days away. So what else do you think? What else do you think um, we can expect to see 
day one of the Trump administration. I think a broad, a broad freeze on all current regulatory activity um, and a um, very, very thorough review of all the stuff that I alluded to earlier that the current administration is doing on its way out the door. Very, when you boil it all down, that those are kind of the major, major themes. Plus, yeah. you know, the policy I, rollback, like Mark was referring to. I, I think there are going to be a couple of very specific uh, executive order repeals, though. Just to name name a few, I, I think you will see the uh, Dakota Access and XL pipelines approved by executive order on day one. I think you will see the uh, very contentious Obama order that ensures cover contraceptive advice repealed with the stroke of a pen on day one. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what he does with trade. I, I think you may see on day one executive orders serving notice, which is how it works in a complicated procedural way that he intends to pull out of the PTT and that he intends to renegotiate NAFTA. So I, I would expect some, some very focused executive orders that simply repudiate some of these, these celebrated steps that the Obama administration took. Well, Howard. If I was uh, just back to the wall for a second, yeah. because he's been tweeting about that a right. lot. If I would, if I um, was Chuck Schumer, I would let, I would just let him twist in the wind, because if he's yeah. going to build a wall, we are going to pay for it. It's going to take an act of Congress, and as I tweeted earlier this week, it's going to take an act of God to get the Mexicans to pay for it. Mexicans aren't paying for the wall. He has to break his promise on some level, and the Dems should just let him twist in the wind. Well, and the reason that I raise that is because if we if we see a challenge to repeal and replace, or if that becomes becomes um, a roadblock, and then certainly the issue of the wall, Trump's Trump sort of you know o, o for two, if you will, um, of uh, of sort of what became his mark to your point, you know, rhetorical platform. Um, but a lot of people rallied around both of those issues. Uh, I wonder, you know, as we as we wind down this call, um, I thought we might we might sort of talk about the inaugural address um, and what what we might what we might hear from Trump um, in that speech. I know we're going to be back on on January nineteenth for mm -hmm. for a call, but. We, we make a lot about inaugural addresses, some memorable, some some not. Um, but but Mark, from your perspective, if if you're if you're president-elect Trump, what do you what do you do with your inaugural address? Well, I have said this uh, a number of times, Blake, in these calls. Uh, I'm not that good at predicting what this guy is going to do. <laughs> But if I were advising him, which is also something that has happened yet, uh, I would hope that he will give an inaugural address that is worthy of the occasion, that is worthy of the office, that is worthy of the transition, and that, frankly, echoes the 
to a lot of people very impressive and a little bit surprising remarks that he made at uh, 3 or 4 a.m. on uh, election night. He uh, promised then to be the president of all the people. He was extremely gracious in victory towards uh, Secretary Clinton and President Obama. And, and I would hope that, that that is the note that, that he strikes again. Uh, you wouldn't predict that based on his Twitter feed, Howard, but, but I'm sure he's getting that advice from some of the folks around him. And, and we can hope that that's what we hear on uh, the 20th. Well, I think, I think he's a lot smarter than I and the three of us and everybody else gave him credit for over the course of, of the campaign. And I think he had, has had and continues to have a political thesis by which he is both by which he has both run his campaign, is running his transition, and will run his government. And that all relates to the impact of globalization on the United States. We see that in his trade policy. We see it in his immigration policy. And we see it in, in other areas as well. And how this country, as a, as a country, uh, adapts to a world that is rapidly changing from an economic point of view is something that in, in different forms I see him continuing to try to address and deal with as president because it's the source of his political power in the first place. And so my view in terms of uh, what he will talk about in his inaugural address is just that. What are the things that you know, make America great again? We'll hear that 800 times in the speech. But, but how are we going to do that? And, and how has the world changed? And, and how do we adapt? And how do we um, make people feel more economically secure? You know, that's why he won. People haven't felt that, and I think we'll hear from him um, his antidote for that problem. Well, more to follow in, in, in the week ahead. I certainly want to thank uh, everyone for listening to the call. Comments and, and feedback are, are certainly, certainly always welcome. You can reach us at presidentialanalysis at cozen.com. Uh, follow us on iTunes or SoundCloud where you can, you can download um, all of our past calls and subscribe to all of our future calls to the extent you you can't make them going forward. But Mark Howard, uh, great to be back with you. Uh, always uh, a lively and fun discussion. And thanks for everyone uh, for listening today.